The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. You have been a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. This God is the one who, verse 8, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away your tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. In that day it will be said, verse 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And then chapter 26 opens by saying, In that day, the day when curse will be overcome, when sin will be abolished, when you and I will not only desire joy, we will delight in that joy forevermore. We have a strong city, verse 1. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for Yahweh, for Yah, Yahweh is how it's worded, is an everlasting rock. Verse 3, um, I just want to unpack that for a second. The phrase, whose mind is stayed on you, do you need me? Okay, thank you. Thank you. The phrase, whose mind is stayed on you, is um, not a word-for-word rendering. It's very dynamic, very interpretive. So I just want to unpack it for a second because I think it's a beautiful, if you just take it word-for-word, it's beautiful what is depicted here. Very literally, what this says is, First word is a word for what is formed, the thing that is formed. It's used all throughout the rest of Isaiah to depict what people are making in their idols. They form their idols. They form and fashion them, and they stand as replacements for the God. But in Isaiah, we shouldn't be making images of God worshiping them, rather we should recognize that we are the image of God that's here to display Him. We are what is formed. So it says, first word, the thing that is formed. And then the second word is, which is supported. So the world is filled with human beings who've been formed by God, but the only ones who are going to know peace are those that are supported. So I picture here, a potter with his clay. He's forming and fashioning a vessel. And it's already formed, but the, the only vessel that is stable and at peace and secure is the one that's in the hands of the potter. So that which is formed, which is supported, he keeps in peace, peace. So it's just a repetition. He keeps in peace, peace, perfect peace. And then, 
It tells us why. The thing that is formed, which is supported, is kept in peace. Because in you, he is trusting. So how do you get into the hands of God to enjoy perfect peace? You're already made by him, but how do you enjoy the security that only he can bring? Those things that are formed enjoy peace, peace, when they are trusting in God. So you have this shelter from the midst of the storm where we can find respite. Look at the verse just before this. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. We want to be within the secure refuge of God. So how do we get inside? Open up the gates, God. How does He open up the gates? Because in you, He is trusting. That's how we find ourselves entering into the secure refuge. So that the psalmist could say in Psalm 46, The Lord is my refuge and my strength, a very present help. In trouble, therefore I will not fear, though the earth give way or the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Then what does he say? There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. The nations rage, kingdoms Nations rage, kingdoms totter, he lifts his voice, the earth melts. Where God is, is peace. Then it says, the God of Jacob is our fortress. The God of Jacob is with us. Be still and know that I am God. So Isaiah 26 Verse 3 says, The thing that is formed, which is supported, enjoys peace, because in you he is trusting. And then the very next verse, So trust in the Lord. Trust in Him forever. For Yahweh, Yahweh, is the everlasting rock. So that's a great verse, paralleling our message today. The thing that is formed, which is supported, he keeps in peace, peace, because in you he is trusting. First Kings. My Janie, who is now 14, when she was five and Ruthie was three, Daddy was sitting on the couch with them, each of them having paper in their laps, crayons in hand, and we were walking through the Old Testament. It was a multi-month adventure of Dad just walking through the story of God's glory in Jesus. Walking my two daughters through the Old Testament, point for point, showing how it's foundation for the fulfillment that comes in Christ. And we didn't cover all the stories, but we were in 1 and 2 Kings for three weeks. And I remember Janie so clearly, five years old, come on, let's get up on the couch. And my five-year-old comes running, and I say, okay, Daddy's going to open up the Bible again to the book of Kings. And Janie's response, after three weeks in, 
was, oh, Dad, do we have to read those stories about all the bad people who sinned against God and then God killed them? <laughs> and for the first time, honestly, for the first time in my life, I felt like I got it. I got this call for dads to be instructing their kids in the story. And all of a sudden, I as a dad, trying to be intentional with my daughters, was linked up to thousands upon thousands of dads throughout history who have simply read the story in order that we might feel it. The Old Testament is not easy to get through because it's filled with lots of people who sin and then God judges them. Three-fourths of the Bible is this way so that we can feel it and see our need for hope, our need for help, our need for a healer. And if you're not reading it, you won't feel it. And Jesus won't have the weightiness the significance that he's supposed to have when we finally turn the page and we read Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. But if we're reading the story, I mean, many of you are like, whew, this is just tough going, this Old Testament thing. It's supposed to be tough going. You're supposed to feel it. Don't stop. Keep pushing ahead and seeing a big God who continues to show up with mercy, 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 undeserved, undeserved, undeserved. So we've got a few weeks here. We're going to walk through the book of Kings in our walk through the Old Testament, getting a glimpse of Jesus' Bible. And the book of Kings ends with Israel in exile. There's no temple yet. That suggests that when the Kings was finalized, the book of Kings was finalized, it was written to a people in exile to answer some questions that they had. And the biggest one I'm going to put up on my screen right now. So open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 1 Kings. Remember, even though there's two books... 1 Kings, 2 Kings, they're actually one book. Originally, Hebrew didn't have vowels, so that cuts down the space size to 50%. But when you translate it into Greek or into English, we add all those vowels in, and the words get a lot longer, and we need more scrolls. Here's the key question, I think, that's being answered in the book of Kings. Why am I here? You know, in exile, the temple gone, the king off of his throne. Why am I here? And Israel, at least it appears the way the book is written, is thinking they're here because God has failed them. And the book is written to say, no, God has actually been very faithful to all of his promises, not only to bless, but also to curse. And you're here because of you. You're here because you've had bad leaders. You're here because kings led you astray and God, who is always faithful to do what he says he will do, has done just that and kicked you out of the land. It's vomited you out because you've taken little thought to the centrality of God and the centrality of his promises in your life. And you've acted like you could live on your own. 
four things that I think this book helps us get our hands around. I'm just going to, you're going to see all four of these unpacked in the next weeks. Number one, the book stresses the role of kingship in the nation's disobedience, division, and destruction. So up till now, we've had one people. They've been called Israel. Now in this book, we're going to see this people ripped apart. Ten tribes go to the north. They're going to only get the name Israel. And the one to two tribes in the south are going to be called Judah. Judah, Israel. And they're all supposed to be one people. And when we get to the prophets, we're going to see the hope that these two nations are all of a sudden going to be brought back together. Jeremiah 31 is a perfect example. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Two verses later, I will make a new covenant with Israel. And Judah's not re-mentioned. Image, they've come back together. They're one people now. And then grafted in are all these Gentiles who've been redeemed. It stresses the role of kingship in the nation's disobedience, division, and destructions. Number two, it showed the importance of the Lord's prophets in Israel's history. A big portion of this book is is given over to the ministries of two guys. Who knows their names? Neither of them got to write books. Elijah and Elisha. And their lives are lifted up They give us a portrait of what prophets were, but their principal point is to point the reader to God, which is what was not not happening in the land of Israel. They are covenant enforcers. That's the role of a prophet. And the focus that is given to those two guys in this book sets us up for Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the twelve others. Number four, In this book, we're going to see a measuring take place. There's a balance that's going to be weighed out. Every king, 20 in the south, 20 in the north, are each going to be put into the balance. And their kingship is going to be weighed. How are they doing? And the measure, the weights over here, are going to be what's what's going to be inside this side The king will be over here, and we'll see how they line up. What's going to be over here is Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. The only spot in the covenantal legislation that gives clarity about what the king was to look like. And we're to read all of these kings in light of this ideal picture. So we're going to spend time... We'll touch on it this week. Next week it will become more in focus. How Deuteronomy 17, what does it tell us that the king shouldn't be doing? What does it tell us that the king should be doing? And then we read the story of the 40 kings, 20 in the north, 20 in the south. We read their stories in light of that text. And then what we're going to see is that Very specifically, it's in light of David who idealed that text. Or in light of Jeroboam who was the ultimate epitome of the opposite. And then finally, this is a book, in a very small way, 
But it's there. And I'm going to argue for it as clearly as I can that says, your hope in the ultimate kingdom has not died. If you can read this book rightly, that is, receive it as an indictment for your sin, and let your heart be humbled before God and turn to Him, the hope of the future kingdom is still yours. And not just your general kingdom, a specific kingdom made up of David's son, the Messiah. So, everything from Genesis 3.15 is still working its way right through the storyline of this book. So we've got an arrangement here. Solomon's rise, reign, and disobedience. That's where we begin. The story's going to open up with David on the throne, but he's in his final days of life. And he's going to pass the baton on to his son. And everything is going to, at least on the surface, look good for a little while. But there's a few hints that, even from the start, Solomon is not quite where he should be. And then... Solomon, who asks for wisdom and is granted wisdom and riches and fame, is, as he, as he ages, going to allow his successes to misplace his affections. And his reign will go down, and God will promise the division of the kingdom. So then we get Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and the king from the north, Jeroboam. So God already to Solomon says, I'm going to rip your kingdom apart. And then Rehoboam, unbeknownst to him that he's actually fulfilling prophecy, turns all the northern ten tribes away from him. And they end up following Jeroboam, who sets up his own two worship centers in Bethel and in Dan. And says, don't go back to Jerusalem anymore. Which is not a good thing to do. And so then the rest of the book is the story of two lines. This should sound familiar if you've read Genesis 3.15. The story of two lines. One, a line of promise connected with Judah. and the Sorry, one connected with Judah, the line of promise in the south. And then the other line, which is hostile to God's presence and hostile to God's king. Ten dynasties in the north made up of twenty kings. One dynasty in the south, made up of 20 kings. Intriguingly, none of the northern kings have mentioned their mother. 18 of the 20 southern kings, when it's telling us how long the king reigned, oh yeah, his mother's name was. I've got a student who's working on a THM thesis, that is a Master of Theology thesis, and part of it, what he he's just written an essay, I've encouraged him, he sent it off for publication because it's that good. But he's arguing that in the book of Kings, we're supposed to see the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman who are in odds with one another all throughout the book of Kings. And the reason the mother is mentioned is is designed to heighten hope in the reader for the ultimate offspring of the woman. The offspring of the mother. Eve is called the mother of all the living in Genesis chapter 3. I don't think that means she's the mother of Cain. In the day you eat of it, you will all die. And when Adam names Eve the mother of the living, 
He's counting on the offspring promise of Genesis 3.15 that says, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And Eve thinks, Cain is it. God has given me a son with his help. And then Cain's life proves that he's not the offspring, so that when we get down to Genesis 4.25, Adam knew his wife Eve again, and she gave birth to a son. And she said, now again... God has given me an offspring in the place of Abel because Cain killed him. She needs an offspring because that's what Genesis 3.15 is putting its hope in. An offspring of the woman who will finally definitively crush the head of the serpent. But notice, God has given me an offspring in Seth to replace Abel because Cain killed him. Implication, Cain is not the offspring of Eve. Oh, he's a biological son, but he's identified himself as an offspring of the serpent, just like the Pharisees thousands of years later, who were claiming to be offspring of Abraham, and Jesus said, no, you're offspring of the devil, your father. So this is a story that's designed to heighten hope in the Messiah. And it does it partially by distinguishing two family lines, this one all in the line of David. And then even to top the scales, it throws in the name of their mother in order to remind us of the offspring promise that would come from the mother. Paul does the same thing in 1 Timothy 2.14 when he says, And the women will be saved through childbearing. And that's a 2.15, that's a very weird text that he mentions that at all. But he's just mentioned Adam and Eve. And I think he's, he's giving clarity to this unique role of the woman in bearing children, not just generally, but as the hope every child that was born throughout the ages and every child that's born today through a woman is a reminder that the ultimate victory comes through a human male born of a woman. So, Division of the kingdom, demise of the kingdoms. First, Israel goes down in the north. The ten dynasties with 20 kings, they're here 150 years shorter than Judah is. Judah prolongs themselves longer, but and God sends prophets calling them back, but they end up, in Jeremiah's words, even becoming more wicked than their older sister Israel. And ultimately in 586, they go down. That's where the book ends in chapter 25 with the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And then it adds a little tag at the end. And we'll touch on the significance of that tag when we get there. So we are going to open up here and just start in the book. We've got a, we're doing a flyby, right? I was even in Samuel longer than I had planned on in my own thinking. We were in Samuel longer than we were on any other individual book from last year. So we're probably going to go through Kings a little bit faster. We begin. Solomon. The rise, reign, and disobedience of Solomon. Coming at the front of the book, this section through chapter 11 really sets the tone and I think gives us the main idea. So we're going to read it in light of that. On the one hand, Solomon starts strong. 
Look at chapter 2. Everything starts the way it should be. When David's time drew near, chapter 2, verse 1, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of Yahweh your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. You have no hope unless you start here. You need to be a book-centered man. That means your kingship means, needs to be a kingship of servanthood. You are a servant of God. You have to walk in His ways. You have to have a humble heart that says, I am not the ultimate king, God is my king. That's the kind of man you need to be. Everything will start here. And that's how Deuteronomy 17 lays it out. He, the king needs to have a copy of the law that he's supposed to read every day so that he will learn to fear God and that he won't have his heart lifted up over his fellow countrymen. He won't be a leader over the people. He'll be a leader among the people. And it'll all, what will characterize it is a word-saturated kingship. And what will be the result? Verse 4, that Yahweh may establish the word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their, where, to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. He has got a good start. Number two. When he's given the opportunity to ask God for anything, what would you ask God for? He asks God for wisdom. Look with me in chapter 3, 9 through 13. God, here's what I'm asking. Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Notice it doesn't say it pleased Yahweh there. It's the sovereign. It pleased, it pleased the sovereign one. God is in, indeed char, in charge of all things. He's the sovereign king. L-O-R-D, small letters. And it's as if the commentator commentator the author of the book, is letting us know that Solomon recognized that. In the way that he talks, these are your people, not my people. I want to govern your way. You are the Lord of all things. And that pleased the Lord that Solomon said this. So God went on to say, because you've asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches of the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that there will be none like you, so that none like you has been before and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked. I give you riches. I give you honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Good start. He asks for wisdom. And then God uses him to build the very presence, to build the very um, building where God's presence will be made manifest. Solomon builds the temple. 
And then God's glory comes. And with an echo of Moses and the tabernacle, the glory of God comes and rests right there in in the temple. So 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priest could not stand to minister before the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of the Lord. In Solomon's day, Israel became the world superpower. Egypt's power had diminished. Mesopotamia's power, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, had not risen yet. There was a power vacuum, and God, for such a time as this, chose to raise up through David and then through Solomon. They became the superpower of the world. So here's Mediterranean Sea, here's the Dead Sea, here's Jerusalem, from which all the influence emanated. And they bore influence all the way down to the river of Egypt. It's a question where exactly that is. All the way up to the Euphrates, just north of Hamat. From the world's perspective, all was well. In fact, it couldn't get any better. But even from the beginning of the story, we're going to see some hints that tell us there's a trajectory that's not quite right. Number one, in the context of Solomon's asking for wisdom, we read this. Well, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, we could start here. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, didn't, Didn't Deuteronomy have something to say about that? He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now Deuteronomy 12 is very clear. The pagans have all these high places where they try to get close to God under every green tree and next to every green bush. That's how it's worded. And Israel was supposed to have nothing to do with those pagan high places. Their focus was to be at the central sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant would be and where the presence of God would manifest itself. But Israel is still engaging. Indeed, Solomon is still facilitating these practices that are We would call them syncretistic. They're not casting Yahweh aside. No, he's still, Solomon loved Yahweh, but he was still allowing other things to enter into his life that were not pure. He had closets in his life that were still closed, and he didn't want them opened up to the regular part of the world. There was uglinesses that were still guiding him. That's why the author is able to say, however, only, those markers that tell us something's not fully right. When he says he was sacrificing, was he sacrificing to the Lord? Very, here, it suggests he still was. Sacrificing to Yahweh. It's not until chapter 11 that we're told that he begins to sacrifice to other gods on these high, high places. 
But what's at stake is even if we don't understand the details of why God asks us to do something, it's still sin to disobey. His heart was not fully inclined to the Lord. And we're going to see two examples, both in Hezekiah and in Josiah in this book, where they actually destroy the high places. And they're the only two in the whole book. Out of 40 kings in the divided kingdom, only two of them are given highest praise. And it's because they truly took as significant the presence of God in their midst. Number two, chapter six, end of the chapter, just before, we're getting right near where he's going to dedicate the temple. Verse 38, look with me there. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bool, which is the eighth month, the house of the Lord was finished in all of its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building God's house. That's the temple. It took him seven years, but then we keep reading. Solomon was building his own house 13 years. Now, how does that work? Where's the level of importance to you, Solomon? Seven years to build the temple, 13 years to build his own place. And we see a little detail like that and we say, is this right? Is this how it should be? Is, there, is the priority where it, it should be placed here? With respect to his time, with respect to his money. It's just a little signal. Then everything begins to really go downhill. After he dedicates the temple, Queen of Sheba comes in chapter 10. And then we read in verse 14 of chapter 10. So it's highlighting all the peoples of the world are coming far and near to see the greatness of Solomon and the wisdom that he had and how he had built his kingdom. And now it says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. And then we read that and we say, Okay, how does that relate to the king shall not multiply for himself wealth. Deuteronomy 17, 16. Then we read verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 14,000 chariots. And then verse 28. And Solomon's import of horses from Egypt and Q, and the king's traders received from Q at a price. How does that relate to Deuteronomy 17, which says, And the king shall not multiply himself horses, and he shall not go down to Egypt, for I have said you shall never return to that place. Then we read in chapter 11, verse 1, Now the king Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they cling with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. He had 700 wives. And 300 concubines. I'm just sitting here. I asked, I said, Teresa, 
So Teresa is still, for this year, at home caring for our twins that we brought home from Ethiopia. And so it's the first time in seven years of my teaching this class that she hasn't been able to sit under my teaching. And seven years ago, that was the first time she'd ever gotten to sit under my teaching. And so it's been a great joy for me to have her here. And, but as I read this, I'm thinking, one wife is plenty for me. <laughs> right? This dog's got 700 of them. So, this wasn't a good thing. And we're to read these as signals. We're looking here at remains of Gezer. Gezer is one of the um, key cities that Solomon built. But what we're told is, and, and what we're looking at here are gates. Gates to the city. They're chambered gates. And the very structure plays into a number of stories in our Bibles. So you come up to the city wall, and you're wanting to go in, and you end up with the city wall is structured like this. So there's these chambers, and in these chambers are little tiny stairs, I mean uh, seats, and the elders of the land would sit in these chambers. And they would do their business. This is where the politics happened. It's where commerce happened. So they would enter in and go through these chambers. So that's what we're seeing here. These are, um, archaeologists date this rebuilding to the time of Solomon because Pharaoh had destroyed Gezer. He'd burned it with fire. He'd killed the Canaanites who lived there. And then Pharaoh, whose daughter became Solomon's wife, Pharaoh gave Gezer, the city, to his daughter is part of the dowry. So um, it's called, often people misunderstand it, they call it a bride price, so that the um, husband, the husband would have to pay for his wife. And that's not actually true. He would, the husband, Solomon, would give Pharaoh money and then that would become the girl's dowry. Well, added, and, and so the daughter would get all that money that Solomon would give. It wasn't, he wasn't paying for the girl. He's actually giving her an inheritance. But here, um, Pharaoh, in addition to whatever Solomon had given as gift, Pharaoh also loaded in this town, Gezer, that he had claimed through battle. And then Solomon, we're told, rebuilt Gezer. And this picture is of Gezer, and we're looking at the Solomonic Gate, dated to his time. This is right, right when he, what he would have built. And it mentions here his wife, one of his 700. Nathan. How far, how far was that? Let me see if I can help us. Um, so here's Jerusalem here's Gezer and so it, it falls right, right on the border between what will become Israel and Judah runs right, right along here but the Egyptians had come in and um, 
ransacked certain cities in this area. Apparently, we don't have a lot of information on those, those journeys, but he's so close to Solomon, and Solomon's getting really strong. Why don't you just keep this one, you know, and pass it on? Yep. So what was the result? Look at chapter 11 with me. Verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart from other gods, from after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. Notice David's being portrayed as an ideal here again. Only possible in light of the forgiveness of God. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not wholly follow Yahweh as David his father had done. And he also built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So his wickedness is going to influence the rest of society. Where the leader goes, the people follow, and, and may, may God preserve a remnant... He's going to hear, but Elijah ultimately is going to be the recipient of this, and he's going to feel he's the only one left. The leadership has gotten so sour, and everything has become so perverted, he thinks he's the only one left, and God's going to have to affirm to Elijah the prophet, I've got 7,000 that I've preserved. And this becomes a message for all future generations who are living in contexts of massive trauma where leadership is not good, And the call is, be among the remnant, not among those who give in. The promotion of idolatry was pervasive, and the ultimate result? The anger of the Lord. Here's verse 11 and 13. Here's what God says to Solomon in light of where his heart has gone. Since you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. Here's the division of the kingdom that's being promised. I'll not tear away all the kingdom, but I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. This sets the stage for the rest of the book. Everything hinges right here. This, a new trajectory is established where there's going to be a group of tribes, ten in particular, that are going to go north And then there's a blurring in the book. Sometimes what Solomon has is called one tribe, or what's going to be left in Jerusalem is called one tribe. Other times it's called two tribes. And I'm not certain whether it's because... Let me give another... Get another map here. Um, Simeon is all but lost in the history of Israel. So they're, they're a 12th tribe, and they're, notice that Judah's borders went all the way around Simeon. So one possibility of reading the text is that Simeon has just been totally 
lost. They, they're just, they're only Judah. But notice Benjamin here, and Jerusalem is actually in Benjamin. So if, if Judah, if their capital is going to be Jerusalem, which it is, well, Jerusalem is a Benjamite city. It's right on the border. And that means that, and this is how the text also reads, that some of the Benjamites are for Judah, everybody who's around the city limits, and then all the rest get blended up above. So, sometimes the text says there's ten tribes in the north and two in the south. Other times it says there's only one tribe in the south. Um, And at least right now, I haven't been able to totally sift through, and it may not even be have clear lines that are being delineated. So, God promises that Solomon will lose a fair share of his kingdom, but not during your lifetime, for the sake of David, because David was your father, I'm going to hold off and only do this judgment after you. So God had said, it's your son, David, who's going to grow up and he's going to build a house for my name. And I will establish his kingdom and his throne. Well, because of those promises and because of Jerusalem, God holds off. But Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam rises. And right in the midst of all this, a prophet, uh, what's his name, Azariah? Um, uh, The... Prophet who talks to Jeroboam. Anybody got his name? It's in chapter 12 somewhere, I think. Um, Oh no, it's in chapter 11 at the end. Ahijah. Ahijah the prophet um, shows up with Jeroboam and says, you're going to have the kingdom. And if you'll follow God, the Lord will establish your kingdom. Well, Rehoboam comes to the fore, or there's tensions between um, Solomon and Jeroboam. Jeroboam goes to Egypt. As soon as Solomon dies, Jeroboam comes back from Egypt, and Rehoboam is there, and Jeroboam is in the crowd, and the question is, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, how are you going to do? Your father really pressed on us hard. Think of all the building projects that your father did. For all these years, 13 years, we were the ones who carried the stones that built Jerusalem. And then Solomon was a huge builder, and he built all over the land, and it was the Israelites who were doing that. Please, will you free us from some of the burden? And if you will free us, hear this, we're going to follow you wholeheartedly. So Rehoboam went away, give me three days, and he talked to his older advisors. So he said, Brother Brad, how would you counsel me at this point? And Brother Brad gave his word of wisdom. And it was a good word, a word that should have been heeded. But then, Rehoboam went over and talked to Jason. I was going to say Drayton, but I thought, I don't want to dog this guy. So, 
He comes and talks to Jason. And Jason says, as the young, immature man, tell them, I'm going to put a harder burden on you. Sol- what is it? Solomon's pressure on you was smaller than... My finger is bigger than his thigh. Yeah. And the ugliness of the young human heart latched on to the foolishness of the young counselors. He mentioned that after three days, and his kingdom ripped apart. Now, Jeroboam is given a kingdom. He goes up north, and the wickedness of his heart pushes him to separate himself from Jerusalem. So this is a picture of Dan in the north, north of the Sea of Galilee, and a picture of Dan, and excavations have unearthed the very place where the high place of Jeroboam was. Here's another angle. Based on specs, getting an idea for what the altar, how tall the altar would have been, you see the, the stairs that led up to the altar that they have uh, remade, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. This is the area in Dan where Jeroboam did his thing. So already we've gotten a glimpse of where this book is headed. Lifting up kingship. A man after God's book. A man who's saturated under God who would lead that way. And yet, those that follow are not at all looking like that. And this is going to be a, a very long and tiresome story. And it's, the book of Kings covers all 40 of the kings. And it sets them out chronologically. And in the Thirteenth year of this king's reign, this king came to reign, and he had a bad reign. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the pattern. Uh, He did not follow in the ways of David his father. Well, in the twelfth year of this reign, this king came to reign, and he had a wicked heart, and he did everything in the pattern of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So the bottom kings are judged in relation to whether they followed David, and the top northern kings are judged by whether they followed Jeroboam. And this trajectory is laid out. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. I just want to make a few points of summary to try to help capture the thesis of this book. So this is the prayer of dedication. And if you read it and then read God's response, I think we can get a sense for what this book is about and what all the readers, you and I, are supposed to receive from it. But even before us, those who were in exile, thinking that it was God's problem. Number one, God's working in and through Solomon is the fulfillment of the Davidic promises and the outworking of the Sinai covenant. 1 Kings... 8.18 
The Lord is doing for me what he promised to David my father. Verse 21, I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. We're going to see this next week. The Mosaic covenant has massive significance in understanding the reign of the kings. So there's continuity. What's going on in kings has continuity with David. The promise is made to David, and it has continuity with the Pentateuch, where the covenant is established. We read the history of the covenant in light of the covenant. Number two, conditions must be met for the covenants to be fulfilled. Look at 8.25. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel... Keep for your servant David, my father, what you promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. There's conditions. Kingship, sustained kingship is conditional. We touched on that last week. The, the portrait is being made that for fulfillment to come, there has to be an obedient son of God, namely the king. 846, Solomon says, there is no one on earth who doesn't sin. Well, if the kingdom is contingent on the obedience of a royal son, and all those royal sons are part of the sinners, God's going to have to do something miraculous. There will have to be divine enablement And God, based on his character as a forgiving God, and as one who's passionate for his own glory, is going to have to intrude and act. I think the readers feel that. This is a book that's designed to crush the people. They're pointing their finger at God. We're in exile because of you. And this book is saying, no, you're in exile because of you. And yet I'm your only hope. Because you, deep down inside, are prone to wander. Do you feel it? And without me, you have no hope, you have no help, you have no answer. So you're going to have to trust in my promises, you're going to have to trust in my character, and look to me to act on your behalf. So I get this out of this passage as well. 8.28 O God, have regard to the prayer of your servant. O Lord God, listen to the cry and to the prayer of your servant that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, to the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. Verse 30, Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Listen, O God. Listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, what? Forgive. This is why we read in the book of Daniel. This is it. The story, the narrative that started in Genesis is going to pause at the end of Kings. It's going to stop at the end of Kings, and then in Jesus' Bible, you're going to get the latter prophets, then you're going to get the former writings, and then Daniel is the first narrative book that opens up again. And Daniel, in praying toward Jerusalem in the midst of exile, is following Solomon's plea. If your people will turn to you and turn their face toward Jerusalem, hear their prayer and forgive. So for Israel to have any hope, it's going to be based on a God who forgives. Verse 43, what else is it going to be based on? O Lord, if a foreigner shall come and pray to you, hear in heaven, verse 43, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that... 
all for which the foreigner calls to you, why? Why answer the Gentile who is pleading for you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you? Act for the sake of your name. So they need to trust a forgiving God and they need to trust a God who is passionate to preserve his own fame. Next, verse 51. They are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace. Verse 53, for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage. Not only do they have to trust that God is forgiving, they have to trust that he's working for the sake of his name, and they have to trust that he is actually caring for Israel as his heritage. It's the only hope they have. If they're sinners, they're going to have to count on deeply God's Commitment to his people. It's no different today. And then have to trust God for enablement. Look at verse 57. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all of his ways and to keep his commandments. That's the only way any of us ever obey. Because he inclines our hearts to him. So the hope in this book, the hope is in a God who is forgiving, a God who's passionate for his name. The hope in this book is for a God who is committed to his people, his heritage. And the hope in this book is that God will, in his own way and in his, in his own time, incline the hearts of his own to walk in his ways. All of that wrapped up in the hope of the Messiah. Let me pray. Lord, I ask that you would meet us this week, taking great comfort that you in Christ have forgiven, that you in Christ have proven that you are passionate for your own renown, that you in Christ have proven that you are for us, that you in Christ have overcome all sin and its power so that you can enable us to be people we couldn't be on our own. May we delight in Christ. May we rejoice that the hope of the kingdom has come in Jesus and that you let us be a part of it. Please overcome the wickedness of our heart that we are prone to, left to ourselves. Overcome our resistance, our doubts, our fears. Make us the people that we should be. For the fame of your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.